The registrar came back and said, we've moved you to the A section. Well, yeah, why? He said, well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal is hardly known. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Joe Foster into the conversation. Normally, at about this time, I go into an extended introduction. But in this case, I don't think Joe needs it. Known by many as the founder of founders, Joe is the co-founder of Reebok. From the backstory of the 1800s to ribbon cutting in 1958, to how the name Reebok was originally inspired, how influencers and Olympians molded and grew the brand to world prominence, even the countless setbacks and near death blows where Reebok almost never came to be. You're about to hear it all. Not only from Joe's journey, but from his highly acclaimed book, Shoemaker, on the untold story of the British family firm that became a global brand. This conversation is your peek behind the curtain. Buckle up and let's welcome Joe Foster to the Playmakers podcast. Joe, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? Paul, we're doing fine. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Nice to meet you as well from across the pond. So on behalf of all Playmakers, we're fired up to have you here. And so, of course, we're going to go deep on Shoemaker. We're going to go deep on the foundation of what we now know as an empire of Reebok and the backstory. But Reebok is, give or take, it's that late 1950s, early 60s when we really started to know Reebok. But you and I both know there are decades before that (laughs) that led up to that point. So why don't you share a bit with our playmakers about the Foster family history the lineage, and the original shoemaker himself. Well, of course, uh, you're quite right. It was the the late 50s, early 60s when Reebok became uh, a brand. Previous to that, of course, the Foster family had been in athletic footwear since 1895. That's when my grandfather is uh, allegedly the inventor of, or was allegedly the inventor of spike running shoes. But where did he get his idea from? Well, he got his idea from his grandfather. Believe it or not, his grandfather was a cobbler. He repaired shoes. He also repaired cricket boots. Because in those days, cricket goes back a long way, and cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. My grandfather used to go down and help his grandfather. And uh, I'm pretty sure he asked the question, um, why have they got spikes in the bottom of these shoes? (laughs) I'm pretty sure the answer was to give to give them grip. When they're out there, they're fielding, they're bowling, or they, they, they need that grip. That's so important. Well, my grandfather was a member of his local athletics club, and he just enjoyed it because he wasn't a good runner. You know, when you sort of have a, a road race or a track race, he was usually halfway down the field. That was his position. Mm. But, of course, on wearing spikes on a cinder track, this gave him so much more traction that he came a very unlikely second in his next race when he had his uh, new spikes on. Um, He had to make a decision then because everybody looked at him and Mm -hmm. said, hmm, these are a bit special. 
Well, that was the beginning of his business. And uh, this is 1895. He's only 15 years old. It's pretty young, isn't it, to be an inventor? <laughs> but uh, so he started his business. And by 1900, he really had a business. And by 1904, he had three world records in his shoes. <clears throat> by 1908, he, he even had gold medals from the Olympics in 1908 in London. The one thing that grandfather did, which we call it today, influencers, he would give his shoes to the right people who were going to win the races, and that would influence the rest of the field, everybody else. They wanted a pair of Joe's mm. track shoes. But, you know, it, it's the 1920s. That was, that was his belle epoque. That, that was the, the decade that he really made it. And uh, there was a film not too long back, Chariots of Fire, that immortalized three athletes. They all won gold medals in the 1920s. Eric Liddell, Harold Abrahams, and Lord Burley. Well, my grandfather, Joe, he made the shoes that they won their gold ah. medal. Okay, 1935, four years later, World War II. So I'm only four years old, just a young kid. And for six years, we had blackouts, we had the war going on around us. When, you, when you're young, it's sort of, you just grow as though that's normal. That's it. That's all you know. So, okay, we get to the end of the war. I'm 10 years old. You didn't go to school every day because uh, the schools were closed. But education wasn't too bad. And, of course, mother looked after us. Mother taught us a lot of things. We learned to read very early in life. And uh, I went to college and eventually left uh, when I was 17 years old and joined the family business. But slowly, Adidas and Puma, they were coming in. They were taking mm. the business. When I was 18, I joined the business at 17. At 18, both Jeff and I, I my brother, we, we both had to go do national service. National service, two years. So you go away from your, your family, you go away from everything. Mm -hmm. And you learn, you learn an awful lot because you've not got any protection. You've got to look after yourself. You learn that things are a bit different. And so when we came back after two years. You said you learned a lot. And, and of course, we'll continue with the story. But if you could reflect back on some of the key things that you learned from those couple of years away that you've been able to apply to the rest of your life ever since, what would come top of mind? Well, I think, I think top of that is that uh, you look for opportunities. It yeah. teaches you to look for the opportunities. Um, you know, I was supposed to be, I was in the RAF, not flying airplanes, but I was on radar. So we, we used to do all the radar, and, but I was only probably four months into that when the opportunity came to play badminton because I, I, I went and we, we, we actually won a cup. And from then yeah. on, played badminton for the rest of my time in the air. <laughs> Love that. So once, once they found somebody who could play badminton, and I was, I was reasonable, well, reasonable enough anyway that they would uh, take me away from the camp that I was supposed to be on, and I just travelled playing badminton. So it was a good <laughs> lesson that you, 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 you learn to take the opportunities as they come along. I say, if we drop back into the family story, we come back, Jack and I both come back from being, Jeff went to Germany, by the way, and he did national service in Germany, so he was, he was looking at Adidas and Puma and the different shoes. So when he came back and we're talking about this, and uh, I said to my father, look, you know, we've got to change. We've got to do something. You know, yeah. You're not doing any marketing. You, you, you just wait for the orders coming through the door. We've got to go out. We've got to spread the message. And my father would say, look, 
when your uncle's gone, when I'm gone, this company will be yours. You can do what you uh-huh. like. Ah, and I said, Dad, well, just a minute. Number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the plan. But mm-hmm. two, this company will be gone long before you are. It's dying. And how did he respond to that? Well, he, he just sort of came. The response was, you know, when I've gone and Bill's gone, you know, it'll be. Yeah. And I'm saying, that was I it. can't do it. I couldn't. I, I, I really don't know. He'd gone through two world wars. World War One, of course. Um, my grandfather's company, they, they were working in it. They had to stop. Nobody wanted running shoes in 1914 to 1918. So they repaired army boots. And, mm. and of course, when Second World War came, same again. They had to do repairing army boots and other things. He wasn't that old. But I think maybe two world wars had worn him out. Maybe the mindset was that we just have to survive. You know, and that's just about what Fosters were doing, surviving. You learn how to make running shoes, but there's much more to the footwear industry than just running shoes. And the best thing that we learned when we, when we went to college is that we made friends. We made association with people who could help us. Mm. So when we were going to leave, we knew who to talk to. We could get materials. We could get machinery. We knew what all these things were. So we managed to get some machinery together. By 1958, we were ready. We set up on our own and set up our own company, Mercury Sports Footwear. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like relationships were the key theme there. And knowing the way that you and your brother somewhat divided and conquered, of course, you had shared uh, interest in the business. But if I understand it, he was more on the operational and the production side. You were more on the sales and marketing side. So when And I have a sales and marketing background. I know how critical relationships can be. So would you say that it was college where you really started to understand the nuance of that interpersonal relationship, that human interaction that eventually you applied to help grow the company that was ahead? I, I think it's been sort of the foundation um, yeah. we bought group. It was acknowledging the fact that, you know, I may know a lot or I may know a little, but amongst all these people, they know everything. People and listening, listening to those people, not just talking at them, no, listening. That's great because I try to be a salesman along the path. I'm not good. <laughs> I, I can talk about products. I can do that. But, you know, a salesman sells himself first. That's the first thing. And being able to sell yourself is so important for a salesman. Mm-hmm. But, yes, people. So we went to college and we met a lot of people. So that when we actually left or when we actually started up our company, the college was about 15 miles away, that's all. But it was a great resource. If we wanted to know something, you pick up the phone or even go there. In fact, Jeff, can, Jeff continued going after we'd sort of qualified in whatever we're doing with our intermediates. We got, you know, we, we learned how to make shoes. <laughs> after we'd done that, Jeff continued to know how to pattern make, how to make all the bits, how to make the, the develop the shoes, not just you know make the make them, but how to develop the patterns and stuff. Jeff loved the factory. He loved it. He was two years older than me, but he said, Joe, he said, I'll look after the factory. You do everything else. <laughs> and everything else meant, okay, make this company work. It- <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> right. No pressure. Yeah, make it work and he'll, do, he'll make the shoes. That was great. As I say, I, I thought, well, the, one of the first things we need to do is to bulk up the sales. Let's go out, get in the car and go, go to the uh, retailers, the sports shops, the retail, and say, look, 
trying to sell my shoes. And this is where I found out I wasn't a good salesman. This is where I probably found out, though, that it, I, I was the guy who had the DNA that sort of improved things, that's looked for the next opportunities. How, how do we sort of step away from this and or step forward? And I go up to the guy, the buyer, and say, uh, <clears throat> I'm Reebok. Uh-huh. And he would say, who's Reebok? Well, so I'd show him the product. And you say, yeah, like your product, that's good. Mm, like your product. But I've got Adidas. Why do I need Reebok? That question came to me at least half a dozen times. That was the end of my sales days. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, you separated selling other things versus selling yourself. So maybe yeah. playmakers listening in may not be in the business of selling other things as a profession per se, but everybody mm-hmm. in life has to sell themselves, whether that is an idea, uh, it could be a business plan, it could be a strategy, it could be in the dating game, you are selling yourself until you find the one. So if you could just give, and then we'll jump back in the story, but if if the goal here is to become the most effective salesperson of yourself, to be able to sell yourself, if I'm a playmaker listening in, is there a single piece of advice that you would give us in that area? Well, selling yourself really is, is, a, is a matter of, Getting a relationship. I had a great friend who was one of the best salesmen I've ever known. And he used to keep a book. He knew all the retailers, he, he, wherever he went. He knew them by the Christian name he called. He knew the, fi- the family, the wife, the kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and he knew what, what school they went to. So it's, I can say, it, it's really doing your homework. You know, that was selling it because he, he bought in to, to the buyer's life. He mm-hmm. bought into his life. And when he went in, it was my friend. And uh, you know, that's what you learn. That you, you learn that you've got to be a friend of somebody, and people have, have got to feel that. To me, that, that was limiting because yeah. I didn't want to be all their friends. I didn't want to be that. I wanted to grow this company. Yeah, yeah. I didn't permanently want to be calling on retailers, but that was a good lesson for me. I started going around in my sort of selling or marketing days. You know, I was going around in the car. Then I'm traveling. Instead of locally, I'm traveling distances it's it's a question of you no know, you've got to move on i wouldn't be saying i wouldn't be a salesman all the time i needed to move on i was i was traveling i wasn't selling <laughs> so i was traveling and uh, that question that came up it was why do i need rebound mm. i recognized the fact that he didn't need rebound mm. he was satisfying his customers with the product he had i had to make him want rebound that was the difference we used to go around to athletics meetings with the car and would sell to the athletes out of the back of the car. And as running became bigger and bigger, there were hundreds of athletes coming running. And I'm thinking, these are my customers. These are the guys that I need. The retailer is a, is a man in between. And uh, all these runners were affiliated to a club. And all the clubs, they were actually affiliated to the three A's in, in the in the United Kingdom, it was the Amateur Athletic Association. And the Amateur Athletic Association, they had a handbook. And in that handbook was the name and address of every secretary of every club. That was it. A letter went out offering only 15% discount and saying if anybody in the club would like to become an agent, they can have the 15%. And they become our agent. Yeah, my first letter, I think with about 400 clubs in this, uh, in this handbook, I got 100 agents on the first letter. And I followed that up with a second letter, wherever it don't hit. And in the end, I had about 300 agents. They were selling. Then what happens? My phone starts ringing. 
these retailers who'd said, you know, why do I need Reebok? They say, oh, look, I believe you're selling direct to our athletic club. Um, I'll stock your shoes if you stop selling it direct. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to sell direct because consider it as, as I do, this is marketing. We're getting our product out there. We've got sales, but the marketing is that people are seeing us. So, but if you want to stock my shoes, you will get them at wholesale price. That's a lot less. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you can give the local athletes 15% off. Um, but I'm not stopping. But if you, if you take my product, you will go into our advertising as a stockist. And we don't really encourage people to go to you. But I'm not stopping my plan. Ninety um, percent of the retailers accepted that. So now, now we were doing we were doing good. They accepted that my what I was doing is marketing. It was in part of advertising. It was really getting the getting the name back. And Reebok became the leading athletic shoe in the country. That and what great. year are we talking here, Joe? Give or take. Give or take, we're we're talking about the mid sixties, sixty five, sixty six, something. Mid sixties, like okay. And so one thing, and as we continue with the story, as I reflect back, read the book, have heard you in different conversations, you just said one of the success stories, that 90% success rate or that take rate from the retailers, which is great, but you and I both know, and I literally have this circle on a sheet of notes in front of me that attracted me to your story. And frankly, it was the perseverance. I circled the word rejection. A, it's a byproduct. Naturally, if you're going to sell or market anything, more people are going to tell you no than yes. Frankly, I think that could be a great life lesson. But I'd really love to share with our audience as we go forward, you didn't necessarily have a path of yes. You had a lot of no. And it seemed like each one was its own uphill battle. And then you almost have to start over. So please feel free. As much as we want to talk about the successes, we'd love to understand best practices on how to overcome rejection? Well, I think we started fairly early on that one. And since after the factory, I, I picked up most of the problems. Being an entrepreneur is taking a risk. Yep. When you're taking a bit of a risk and accept that not everything's going to work. And we were only 18 months into our nice little Mercury sports footwear when our accountant said, you need, you need to register that name. Mm. And we couldn't. We couldn't. Somebody else had it registered. That was our first block. We were a bit sort of, ah, what do we do? So we were told to go and see a patent agent. And a patent agent, they would check out the registers and whatever. <clears throat> and I went there and the patent agent had checked out the Mercury name. He knew. He knew the people who had it registered, a big corporation. And they were going to offer that name to us because they weren't using it. They weren't using it. They were just mm. registered. And they would offer it to us for a thousand pounds. We just set up our small factory for 250 pounds. <laughs> so four X that. That's right. <laughs> oh man. We just didn't have a thousand pounds. You know, we're, we're going back. It's a long time back, but we didn't have a thousand pounds. We didn't have it. And the, uh, the agent said, okay, well, you'll have to change your name. Okay. But he said, don't bring me one, bring me 10. I'm saying, just a minute, we have a company, we've got to love that company. We, it's got to be our life. So we, we really need to be in love with whatever name we're going with. And uh, he said, we can do it one at a time, but that'll probably take you about six months as I try test it through the uh, register. Because uh -huh. in those days, they had to write letters and do everything. So we sit around the table. 
And I'm sure you've sat around the table saying, what should we call this? Uh, how, about, how about Cougar? Cougar, Cougar Sports. That's a good name. Yeah. Uh, oh, Falcon. Falcon's a good name. Yeah, Falcon Sports. They're good. But you now, let me take you back to 1943. I'm eight years old, and it's the middle of World War II. And uh, like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. So mm. everything was sort of local. And a local yeah. event. I, I won a 60-yard race in a local event. I am wearing, of course, Foster Spikes. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I win the event, and I go up to collect my uh, my prize. Yeah, and what do I get? What do I get? I got a dictionary, and I'm eight, and I'm saying to the guys, "Where's the football?" You know, <laughs> Thanks for the dictionary. <laughs> what do I do with the dictionary? And more than that, as I found out later, it was an American dictionary. It was a Webster's, Webster's, Webster's yeah. American Dictionary. And, of course, quite a few of the spellings are different. But at the time, it didn't matter. But here we are, fast forward, 1960, looking for a new name. And I have my dictionary there. And I like the letter R. I thought, ah, oh, that's a nice, strong letter. So I open my dictionary at R, and I start thumbing through. And I come across Reebok, hard to believe, B-O-K, what's that? Well, it's a small South African gazelle. Ah, running company. Yes, Al. Fantastic. We'll do that. Top of the list. I went back to the agent with my list and I said, Look, I want Reebok, but he's a lawyer. You know, he said, Okay, see what we can do, but you know, didn't get enthusiastic at all. However, a week later, he came back and said, Look, the only one you can have is Reebok. <laughs> it's the only one that's clear, perfectly clear. One caveat. And I said, What's that? He said, Well, the registrar tells me that if somebody makes shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. I said, that's never going to happen. No, that won't happen. We'll take Reebok. <laughs> but with this caveat means that you're going into the B section of the register. Okay, we're in the B section. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you to the A section. Well, yeah, why? He said, well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal is hardly known. All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. So here we are. So we've, we land on the name of Reebok. Everything is approved. And so now you're in these earlier, but these growth chapters, right? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, at the time, so you're largely still... Um, you, you haven't penetrated the U.S. yet, correct? No, we, we yeah. hadn't. We're, we're only 15 months into our business, so it's yeah. 1960. I, I didn't get my first trip to the U.S. until 1968. The example was that uh, this is, these are sort of uh, problems you get. You don't know what's going to happen. Only four years into our business, we actually got a letter from the Adidas lawyers. And uh, at that time, our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar. 
And they said, this infringes their three strikes. That's another problem. Okay, well, you do, we haven't got the money to fight them. Did want to fight them. Now, for five minutes, we sort of, ah, oh, then, well, that, got, that letter got pinned on the wall. Adidas already know we're here. Adidas know we're around. And now they're a bit, not so much worried, but they want to give us some trouble. What do we do? We, we changed our silhouette. We changed it to what is now the Vector. And that was just certainly more uh, original, more, more visible. So we changed our name, we changed our silhouette. And, and, I, and I think that what happens, that you, you begin to sort of accept the fact that there will be problems. Then you, you say, well, how do we turn this problem into an advantage? And the name was better, we think, and the silhouette was better. Again, we think, and it's still there today, the, the silhouette we moved to. But essentially, it's, we can get through it. And like you say, it is that, uh, it's that stamina. It's that ability to get on with it and, uh, and move forward. Well, and so, and I, I love your point, Joe, that no matter what, you keep moving. And moving does not always mean moving forward. It, yeah. Like to your point, and I, I love the concept of it. I say playing offense. And when I talk about playing offense, I'm very direct with folks because people always just think that's a, an approach to charge forward. And I say, absolutely not. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a pivot to the left or right. And sometimes it's an intentional. The keyword here is intentional. It's an intentional one step back because you know that's necessary in order to take 10 forward. And so I really want to bring our playmakers into this. The key is to keep moving. Yes, that's yeah. the mentality. I mean, you're quite right. A step back is sometimes essential because you're in the wrong place. Right. <laughs> and if that's so, step back. But the, uh, your eye is on the future. You're not, to, not to retreat. This is tactical. And, and then you move forward. And like you say, you pivot. I used to say to, uh, well, my brother Jeff and the families, look, we should be trying to get into America. Foster's got into America. In fact, actually, America came and took Foster's to America. Um, so I wanted to get into America. And of course, the uh, family resistance was, well, we don't have the money to sort of even take the trip. Fortunately, again, good fortune, a bit of luck here. The British government decided that uh, they would, uh, they wanted people to export. And I'm reading a magazine and they said that, look, you're in, it was a sports magazine. I think it was called Eurosport. You can, uh, you can go to America. We will, we will pay for a stand at the NSGA, which is National Sporting Goods Association of America, in Chicago. We'll pay for your stand. We'll pay for your return airfare. And we'll also pay half of the expenses whilst you're there, your hotel bill, your food and whatever. Wow. I got no objections next time when I said, look, <laughs> I should go to America. And this is 1968. I'm up against the same problem. I've got to get my product into America, just like trying to get into the retail stores in the, earlier. 1968, when did I get in? 1979. 11 years of 11 a gap. Years. That's right. A gap, I was filling it all the time. I was there. I was pushing, pushing, pushing. This is where our luck came in. Possibly because we've been around long enough, it took 11 years to get there. But during that period, running, running became a big category in America. All you needed was a pair of shoes. It was late 60s, late, very late 60s, when Runner's World, just a single page, A4 page, would tell you where the next running events were and the things that, uh, <clears throat> who'd won some events. And, but by 1975, 
Chronos World was a big, glossy magazine, 50, mm-hmm. 100 pages, whatever. It was big, and it, it and it covered all the events. And, of course, that was the place to advertise. I'm thinking, well, this is okay. Then Bob Anderson, he was the, he was the publisher, Bob Anderson. He decided, because he was doing so well, <clears throat> and Nike was growing at the same time with this magazine, it was great. We were on the wrong side of the pond. You know, we were, we were, everything was going on in the States. Bob Anderson decided... He knew which was the number one shoe, telling everybody you should buy this shoe. And, of course, it was Nike. You can say there was about 350 million Americans. 10% weren't running now. That's 35 million. And 10% of that, 3.5 million, probably wanted to buy the Nike shoe. And could Phil Knight fulfill the orders? No. All of a sudden, 3.5 million want to buy this shoe that you're importing from Japan. Didn't happen. Everybody's upset. You know, the, the runners couldn't get the shoe. The the uh, the sports stores they they couldn't get the shoe. Phil Knight is upset because he couldn't supply, so he knew he was going to lose that one. And twelve months later, Bob Anderson, publisher of Runners World, decides we'll change the number one shoe to another one. And of course, the same problem. So he changed this. He changed it. Uh, he changed it to star ratings. Five stars, well, we could get three, four, five, maybe five-star running shoes, uh, so it wouldn't be such a big pressure. I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew that. 1978, we, we actually produced a range called the Gold Range. The training shoes is the one that we wanted as five stars. We tested this out in Edmonton. Uh, there were Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and we got a shed load of medals, and we really did well. So 1979, I'm there with my gold range, and in particular, Aztec, which was our running shoe, and along came Kmart. Running was growing, really growing at that time, and Kmart came along and said, uh, we'll take 25,000 pairs. Oh. Huh. Right. That's about six months' work for our small factory. (laughs) In the UK. 25,000. 25,000, right, okay. Sounds good to me. I knew, I knew if we got a five-star shoe, the demand would be there. So I'd already made arrangements <clears throat> with a friend of mine who was now working at Barter. Barter were the biggest shoemakers in the world. And so they said, yeah, we'll make your shoes. Good, that's great. But then came and I said, yeah, but we want a better price. Barter could have made a better price, but not much better than ours. They could do a better one. <clears throat> but that meant going to South Korea. Fortunately, I also made arrangements with a, an agent for a South Korean factory. So I thought, well, okay, we can do that. We're, we're in February. The uh, shoe ratings come out in, uh, in August. Between February and August, I took a trip to, uh, to the States. I took a trip to see uh, Kmart. The last week in, uh, in July... I ring Paul. I said, Paul, can you get down to the local kiosk? I'm sure they've got Runners World magazine now with you know, the shoe edition. An hour later, Paul came back. Joe, I got one. This uh, is fantastic. Aztec has got five stars. Wow. I mean, nice. That was it. That was the moment. And I'd had six failures because who wanted Reebok? We had to find a way in. The five-star, the star ratings, that was it. Not only did we get five stars with our Aztec trainer, our Inca Spikes also got five stars, as did the Midas, which was the racing shoe. So we got three five-star shoes 
I love that. And that, like you said, was the breakthrough that gets you here. Like you said, though, earlier, problems transformed into opportunities, problems becoming advantages. And isn't it interesting how no five-star, no five-star, no five-star to three five-star, right. just like that. Just like that. And so yeah. what happens going forward? But this is, this is where we, we, we come to the pivoting because we're doing nicely. But one of our technical reps down in Los Angeles was Angel Martinez. He was a tech rep. Uh, he would go into the stores and tell them all the good things about Reebok. He wasn't a salesman. He would just go to the, uh, the floor staff and tell them all about Reebok. And his wife, Frankie, his wife, Frankie, is going to aerobic classes. And she's coming back on all of it. And Arnold said, what are aerobic classes? What's aerobic? And she said, well, we're actually exercising to music. And it's fabulous. We love it. All her friends were, were going as well. Arnold said, can I come down to your next, uh, your next session? Yeah, well, why not? So he did. And he saw the instructor in a pair of sneakers. We believed there were new balance who made an all-white sneaker. And half the class were wearing the same sneaker. The other half, no shoes at all. Arnold saw an opportunity. He thought, why don't we make a shoe specifically for women, just women's sizes, nice, soft glove leather, just like wearing a glove, comfortable. So he's in Los Angeles. He gets the red eye up to Boston, goes to see Paul. Paul, he tells Paul his story. And Paul said, Arnold, slow down, slow down, slow down. We're a running company. Why do we want to be making dancing shoes? He, he didn't say no to, to Arnold. He said, just watch it. And, you know, if uh, yeah, we'll think about it, whatever. Arnold didn't like that. Arnold wasn't satisfied. <clears throat> so we ran around. <laughs> he went to the back door and he, he met uh, with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our production man. He must have made a better job with Steve than he did with Paul because he got his samples. He got, he got a couple of hundred pairs of samples, took them back. There he is down in, uh, in, in Los Angeles, giving them to all the instructors and some of the leading girls down there. Uh, and of course, uh, when Jane Fonda actually bought a pair of these shoes to wear in her, uh, in her videos, her fitness videos, the whole thing took off. And that this is it. the full circle on influencers, exactly the same silver bullet as what your grandfather had discovered back then. Yes. It, now you're different country, different generation, but the yeah. same principle of the influencer. That's it. We were a $9 million company at the time. The next year we were 30 million. Then we were 90 million, then 300 million, and then 900 million. So oh from, almost from zero to a billion in five years. Um, five years. Yes. That was a, an incredible growth. That is, I mean, that's, there's so much to unpack there. And so I, I think that's a beautiful lesson because there's a couple of things that I'm going to double click on. One is the journey into the United States took 11 years and failure after failure, rejection after rejection, missed opportunity after missed opportunity. And then it hit and there was a breakthrough. And then, like you said, there was an influencer component. And then from a matter of tens or hundreds of millions to nearly a billion dollars in five years. And I think that's just a universal message of bigger than business, just to stay in the fight. Yes. Stay in the fight. Right. And so right now, if you're listening into this and if for whatever reason, the breaks haven't been going your way, but you still keep moving, 
and you're making some strategic decisions along the way, but you keep moving. I think that's the inspirational piece that all playmakers can latch on to. Uh, we're not afraid of pivoting. You know, we're a running company. We're mostly male. You could say all of a sudden we pivot. We become a women's company. It, yeah. And that, that was so fascinating. We're a women's company and we're, made, we're, we're forming a new category. You know, this is white space. We moved into something. And there's bravery. There's bravery and courage in that pivot. It, immediately, uh, there's many examples, but correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, this, this probably reminds a lot of us of Blockbuster could have been Netflix had they made that pivot. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I could keep going. There's other examples. What Kodak could have become those pivots and pulling the trigger, those are the things that can keep us moving. So continue. And one of the things that I learned about this is that, okay, the idea was to make it in glove leather, and they did. But glove leather, when I heard that they were making it in glove leather, why? Glove leather. That's a bit, uh, that's risky. <clears throat> because glove leather is one millimeter thick. If you can think of one millimeter. And then in order to put the adhesive onto it, you've got to take the surface off so that the adhesive will go. So you, you're ending up, with, I think it was about 0.7 of a millimeter or less. And you're putting this all on. Then people are, well, the girls were dancing up and down and they were breaking out. They were falling apart uh, after one month of work. But you know, mm. we, were, we were in Los Angeles. We, we were in America. This is one, probably the only country that would look at that and say, ah, it's okay, buy another pair. <laughs> and they went out and bought another pair. So I'm, I'm talking to the guy. I said, well, you know, you, you've got to do something. So what did they do? They lined it with nylon. And I'm saying, okay, guys, you've lined it with nylon. Now you've stopped it breathing. You know, leather breathes. You put nylon at the back and you stopped it breathing. Okay, so what did they do then? They punched holes in it in the front and made a nice pattern so that it would breathe. And what did I learn? I learned that marketing people are far better at selling shoes than a shoemaker. I learned an awful lot. And that's, I, I've been through a lot, but I learned then that, yes, marketing, they look at the customer. What does the customer want? And then they make the product fit the customer. They don't make the customer fit the product. And yeah. that was a big lesson for us. And, and we grew. And uh, we, we grew big. Right? By the time we got to... Uh, just under four billion, I decided uh, for me. No, this is not my game. I mm. I love a challenge. I love the fight. I love that. Now I'm I'm flying around the world because I've put thirty dif different distributors on in that time, and I'm going seeing them. And I'm being picked up by a limousine. I'm going to the best hotels. We're dining at the best restaurants, and we're just talking. And we've become corporate. By the time we've become corporate. That's not my game. A lot of accountants, a lot of lawyers, and a lot of people in between. They're smart people. They know how to run a company. I know how to fight my way up the hill. They keep the fort. So it was time for me to retire. At the end of 89, early 90, I, I retired. My challenge, though, was no challenge then. My challenge now was writing a book. Why did I write the book? Well, I'm lying down the, in the sun, enjoying life a bit, and... Uh, uh, probably a bit keen to do something, and I'm reading Wikipedia, I'm reading Google, and they're telling me how Reebok began. 
And, <laughs> yeah, and there's a photograph of Joe Foster. And it's not me. Who is this? So I'm thinking, it's about time I wrote that book that people keep on saying, you've got to write your book. When did you start the process, Joe? Oh, uh, I think it's about seven years ago now, because wow. it, took, it took a long time. The problem that, with writing a book is uh, chron- chronology. It's having yes. everything in the right order at the right time. So eventually, after about, oh, must have been four drafts, I eventually got to the point where this was it. This was the story. So we got the book. So now this is my new challenge. My yeah. new challenge, which is good. <clears throat> writing it was a challenge. Now the next challenge is no point in writing a book unless you can get people to read it. Of course. That's the <clears throat> impact. Yeah. So, so that's what we're doing now. It's, uh, and it's keeping us busy. And this conversation is a big part of that. And we're happy to bring our entire Playmaker community in. So please let us know where can Playmakers pick up their copy of Shoemaker and any other message of how we can find you, follow you. Please share. Well, the easy way is Amazon. Still in a lot of stores. You can buy it in the stores, but Amazon is selling it. We, we have a tour coming up later this year where we'll be in a lot of cities in the States. And uh, I'm just going on a speaking tour. Is this private or open to public? How? Tell us more about the tour and if there's anything you want to share with our playmakers. It starts in Boston, middle of August. <clears throat> we can send you some information. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be sure yeah. whether when, when we release the show, we'll yeah. have it all out there. So playmakers, please be checking in to playmakerspod.com for our conversation here with Joe Foster. Joe, final question, and then we're going to get out of here. So obviously a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and perspective that you have. Mm-hmm. If you could reflect back, and I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but if I was to ask you for the single best piece of advice that you have either given or been given, if you could boil it down to one to share with our playmakers, what would that piece of advice be? As you can imagine, there's loads of it, but there is one piece of advice I can give to anybody, and that is have fun. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. If you're not enjoying it, you're in the wrong place. Have fun. Fun is the most important thing. Enjoy it. That way you'll succeed. Fun connects to passion, which connects to purpose. And we are here to live and lead on purpose. So with that, Mr. Joe Foster, thank you so much on behalf of all playmakers for spending this time with us. You have just been, uh, again, a wealth of knowledge and inspiration. Playmakers, pick up your copy of The Shoemaker. And Joe, appreciate you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.